So we have some exciting news for Steministas, or maybe not so exciting, depending on how often you listen to our podcast. But we are going to take a hiatus from May through August. And then we are planning on coming back with a kind of seasonal, not seasonal, we're planning on coming back with sort of a podcast based on different seasons. So that way we can kind of be a little bit more intentional with our podcast episodes, potentially get some guests on the air, and really just give you a better podcast instead of podcasting necessarily bi-weekly every year. During this hiatus period, I will actually be defending my PhD dissertation. So, <laughs> Dr. Rachel, coming up soon. Yes, soon to come. And after my PhD, I'll be moving to Boston, where I'm going to do a postdoc at Harvard in Melfini's lab studying Alzheimer's disease. Rachel, you could, like, get the ends with George Church and talk to him since you're <laughs> at Harvard, since we talk about him so much on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like he'd be a fun person to interview, but I would just, yeah, it probably wouldn't go great. Oh, man, I would be so intimidated. <laughs> I definitely. I feel like we have very different views on how CRISPR should be used. Yes. (laughs) So this is our second to last episode of, I guess, this considered season. And our next episode, we're going to put a poll up over on Instagram and Twitter of which of our YouTube episodes you want us to convert into podcast form. So we have, for those of you who don't know, Steministas originally started as a YouTube back in, I think, 20... 18 July 2018 and we have quite a few videos as backlog and recently we've thought about kind of converting these videos into podcast form just to make it a little easier to listen to and also be some new kind of information you haven't necessarily heard before so if you are interested in voting on which episode we put into podcast form go on over to our Instagram or our Twitter at Stebanistas pod And of course, keep your eyes out um, coming in September for our next season. We have some exciting plans in the work. Rachel, recently we celebrated World Down Syndrome Day on March 21st. This day is special to me because I spent many years teaching tennis for Special Olympics North Carolina because my mom was the director of Special Olympics Tennis for North Carolina. That is really cool. Um, So coincidentally, my research with the free flies during my undergraduate training was broadly related to Down syndrome. So actually, I'm more of a connection to Down syndrome from the research side. And I've never had the opportunity to volunteer with Special Olympics, but, you know, I I have many friends that do, and and it's a great experience. And all the people I know in my life with Down syndrome are just a total joy to be around. The people I know who have Down syndrome are some of the most kind, loving, and fun people, and they're just so content in the skin they're in. Sadly, however, it seems like more and more of the advanced countries are encouraging parents to abort their child if pre-birth screening indicates that the child has Down syndrome. This is really sad, and honestly, it it wasn't even on my radar until Emma brought it to my attention, so thank you for bringing this idea for discussion. And in this episode, we're going to share some of the statistics being put out by different countries, explain the genetic basis behind Down syndrome, and also discuss some of the bioethics behind what's happening. We don't usually share our opinions on controversial topics in an effort to remain both balanced and impartial, 
But since we're talking about abortion today, which is an issue we both feel strongly about, we felt it's important to share our individual stances on the issue. So I am pro-life and Rachel is pro-choice. And we hope this episode can serve as an example for how two people with polar opposite views can actually sit down and still find a lot of common ground to agree on. Before we talk about some of the statistics of Down syndrome, we want to describe the genetic basis of this disease. We know that people have 46 chromosomes. 23 are from mom, 23 are from dad. Uh, People with Down syndrome actually have 47 chromosomes because they have three copies of chromosome 21 instead of two copies. And this can happen due to what is called non-disjunction, which is actually exactly what I used to study in the fruit flies. Oh, that's awesome, because this has always been a confusing term for me in every genetics class I've been in. (laughs) It sounds fancy, but, you know, when you break it down, it's like non-disjunction. It doesn't separate correctly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So when your sperm or your egg cells are being made, they go through cell division, where the chromosomes are divided in half. So that each sperm or each egg has 23 chromosomes. If this process doesn't happen correctly, and what Rachel said, and you don't have proper separation, it's called non-disjunction. And this results in the sperm or the egg cell having either more or less than 23 chromosomes. This happens in Down syndrome, where the child has three copies of chromosome 21. And there's also two other diseases where this happens also. Edwards syndrome, you have three copies of chromosome 18. And Patel syndrome, you have three copies of chromosome 13. And those two diseases have a lot worse prognosis than Down syndrome does. Emma, this must be like your Latin training or something, but I'm always so impressed by you just blazing through these pronunciations of weird disease terms. (laughs) I mean, I could be be pronouncing it very wrong. (laughs) You convinced me. But um, even more broadly, beyond these diseases that Emma mentioned, having a whole extra copy of a chromosome can be totally devastating, especially with the larger chromosomes that contain more genes. And it's one of the main causes of miscarriage. You probably heard that the older a mother is when she has children, the higher risk she has of having a baby with Down syndrome. This is due to the mother's egg cells not being able to divide as accurately the older the woman is. It's been estimated that in the case of Down syndrome, that the extra chromosome 21 normally comes from the woman in 98% of cases. And my undergraduate lab was really interested in why egg cells are more error prone than sperm cells. So we, we only did studies in the female flies. What did you guys find? There's this structure that's pulling the chromosomes apart during cell division. It's called the, the spindle. Um, And this structure is constructed in very different ways in, you know, normal somatic cells like your skin or something or male meiotic cells compared to the the female egg cells. They build this structure in a really unorthodox way. And so our hypothesis was that because they were building this structure to pull the chromosomes apart in such a different way, maybe that contributed to the errors. That's really interesting. I know you said earlier just that having an extra copy of a chromosome can be really devastating. And I think when I was in genetics, like 101, basically in college, I think Mm -hmm. they were saying that when you have that extra chromosome, you have more genes being expressed from that chromosome. Yeah, I mean, it's very complicated. So like with the sex chromosomes, you know, like one of the X's is silent. So I'm not sure if similar things could happen on other chromosomes besides sex chromosomes. 
but yeah, in general, you, you have access to, I guess, three copies. Yeah, and I think that's why they say, because I, it, yeah, it is different with sex chromosomes, because I know in the case of um, many of Kleinfelter's, which is XXY, Mm-hmm. A lot of their issues are because both of the X chromosomes are being expressed. And so they have, like, so much more of a gene product being produced. And I think that's the case with Down syndrome as well. Down syndrome is screened for pretty early on in pregnancy at around 10 to 13 weeks. And it's important to note that these tests don't say 100% that a baby has Down syndrome, but give a probability. The first kind of screening is an ultrasound together with a blood draw of the mom. Researchers have certain characteristics they're looking for in a sonogram, like nuchal thickness, which is a small pocket of fluid behind the neck that can indicate the likelihood of a child having Down syndrome. The blood serum tests look specifically at pregnancy-associated plasma protein A and human chorionic gonadotropin. Based on the ultrasound and the concentration of these two proteins in the blood, doctors can determine the probability that the child has Down syndrome. Doctors will also look at the mother's blood around 15 weeks, and they can sometimes find some of the baby's cells in the mother's blood, which can indicate if the baby has Down syndrome. And as you can imagine, being able to test the baby's actual cells, of course, would be the gold standard because you're actually looking at the changes in that DNA. So these first tests have about a 5% false positive rate meaning that in 5% of cases, the test will come back positive, but the baby won't have Down syndrome. And one interesting thing with Down syndrome, too, is that there's different kinds of Down syndrome. The main Down syndrome we think of is where every person who has Down syndrome, their cells will have three chromosome 21s. But there is another kind of Down syndrome called mosaic Down syndrome, where only some of their cells have three of chromosome 21. And there's even a more familial inherited Down syndrome. But what we're talking about mainly in this podcast is a version of Down syndrome that we normally think of. Yeah, I mean, that's we talked in last week's podcast all about all the different cell divisions that are happening in the embryo. So, of course, this error could take place in making the egg cell, but it could also take place in all of the subsequent cell divisions, too. And you may wonder, well, why can't doctors just look at the baby's chromosomes to be extremely accurate and know if they 100% have Down syndrome? Doctors can do this by performing an amniocentesis, and this takes a small sampling of the amniotic fluid around the baby, and but this procedure is pretty invasive and has a miscarriage rate of 1 in 100 if it happens after 15 weeks of pregnancy. There's also another way called chronic villus sampling, and this takes a sample of the placenta and has a smaller risk of miscarriage. And these sorts of tests are very accurate to determine if your baby has Down syndrome. I'm guessing the difference between those two tests is the amount of DNA you can get from each biopsy. So if you aren't getting very much DNA from those small amount of cells you find circulating in the mother's blood, that could make it really difficult to get accurate results uh, compared to these other tests where you just have more sample or more tissue. If it comes back that the baby has Down syndrome, they're then referred to a genetic counselor to help them decide what to do. And what we're seeing in many countries is that the rate of abortion of babies with Down syndrome is creeping up. The Danish Central Cytogenic Registry has estimated that 98% of babies with Down syndrome are aborted in the country of Denmark. In 2019, there were only 18 babies with Down syndrome born in Denmark, compared to about 6,000 babies in the U.S. Denmark was one of the first countries that recommended early screening in pregnancy, 
and other countries have followed suit. And it's been estimated that about 67% of Down syndrome pregnancies are aborted in the U.S. and 90% in the U.K. These numbers are interesting when you consider that the places where they're having such high rates of abortion of Down syndrome babies are also some of the most medically advanced places where a disability like Down syndrome can actually be managed pretty well. People with Down syndrome do struggle with a variety of different physical and mental disabilities. However, each person is different. The most common mental disabilities are intellectual disability, short attention span, and difficulty learning. And the most common physical disabilities are immune system problems, hearing and sight problems, and heart issues, with about 40 to 50% of Down syndrome people needing open heart surgery early on. Also, as we covered in the In a previous podcast, individuals with Down syndrome have an increased incidence of Alzheimer's disease because one of the genes involved in Alzheimer's disease is on the 21st chromosomes. So these individuals have three copies of this gene. Now, hearing that list is definitely overwhelming, and I can imagine that parents who find out their child may have Down syndrome have a lot going on in their head and wonder about the financial implications and whether they could even take care of a child with a disability. For sure. Interestingly, a study was published in the American Journal for Medical Genetics looking at insurance claims of those who had children with Down syndrome versus those who did not have children with Down syndrome. And they estimated that insurance is about $80 more per month for children who have Down syndrome versus those who don't. For families without good insurance or strong support systems, it could definitely affect their decision to have a child they may not be able to take care of as well. Yeah, definitely. And the families I know who have children or adults with Down syndrome, they definitely all thought that they it would be really hard to make this work. But it has been cool that they've seen their lives extremely enriched by keeping their baby. And since we live in the U.S., there are some amazing resources, especially in the Raleigh-Durham area, which is where we live. Down syndrome is a tricky topic because so many babies who have Down syndrome are being aborted. But at the same time, we see people with Down syndrome having great lives. They're able to go to work, get married, even have kids. And it's not to say that they won't have health issues, but they still can live pretty great lives. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of stigma around Down syndrome because pre-birth, many parents are encouraged to abort their babies. But after birth, the accomplishments of people with Down syndrome are praised and highlighted. I found it difficult as well that the more pre-birth genetic screening that was required the more instance there was of abortion of Down syndrome babies. And this gets into the question of ethics behind Down syndrome. There are some states that have or or are pushing for laws that prevent abortion in the case of Down syndrome. An article against these bans made the valid point that there needs to be more resources for those who have disabilities and less discrimination before forcing people to have a child with Down syndrome. I definitely understand that viewpoint because the parents I know have had to advocate hard for their kids, which is why seeing Special Olympics do fantastic work and getting people with disabilities to play sports has been such a cool thing to witness. However, personally, I would say that having less discrimination of people with Down syndrome often starts by explaining to parents that their kids with Down syndrome can live really great lives and have the medical care they need. Having fewer and fewer kids with Down syndrome born each year makes it difficult to destigmatize Down syndrome and makes the current community of Down syndrome feel unwanted in a lot of cases. But I also understand that there are many personal factors that go into making a decision. Without counseling to know what your options and resources are, it's hard to make an informed decision. However, banning the option of abortion at all seems like an overcorrection to me. 
as you said, there are a lot of personal factors that go into the decision, and it seems like what's desperately needed are more balanced educational resources when making a decision and more access to resources if you decide to have a child with Down syndrome, which you already brought up the fact of better access to resources. The Atlantic did a fantastic article in December of 2020 called The Last Children of Down Syndrome, and they talked about this decline of Down syndrome in Denmark and brought up the idea from Dr. Rosemarie Garland Thompson, who's a professor of English at Emory and also the co-director of the Disability Studies Initiative. Dr. Garland Thompson coined the term velvet eugenics to describe, as she says, how biomedical technologies select and support some lives according to criteria assumed to be reasonable and incontrovertible. She argues that we are trying to identify the best and worst in people and select against disability based on what we describe as best and worst. Dr. Garland Thompson also co-authored a piece in Scientific American titled The Dark Side of CRISPR, where she details potential ethical issues with CRISPR and expounds upon her own disability and how she would likely have been deemed not good to be born if she was born now. Her article was extremely sad to read because there has been more and more of a push to eradicate or select against certain diseases that people are able to live with and still have great lives. They say it well in the article, and I quote, These ideals also expose an even deeper ableist assumption that people with supposedly bad genes fundamentally suffer and hold a less valuable place in society than others. This isn't to say that people with genetic conditions don't suffer, but they don't necessarily suffer all the time and won't necessarily suffer any more than other people without such conditions. Yet the cultural impulse to assume that people with genetic variations are in a constant state of suffering and that it blights our lives is so pervasive that it is even internalized by some with genetic conditions themselves. Well said. It's definitely a blurry line when considering what should be edited out. And we've touched upon this before when we talk about the Russian scientist Denis Rebrikov and how he started using CRISPR gene editing on eggs donated from a woman to try and see if he can figure out how to edit the embryos of deaf couples who wanted to have babies without hereditary deafness. When this news and another study that Harvard scientists did to correct hereditary deafness, several deaf communities made it clear that they didn't want to gene edit their children because they do not need to be fixed, but our culture, with its inaccessibility, should be fixed instead. Shots fired. (laughs) Um, And in the article we're linking in the show notes, they talk about um, what's called deaf gain, and how some deaf people are actually protected from other diseases. Knowing two languages, uh, American Sign Language and English, can help protect against Alzheimer's disease. The article encourages researchers to consider biocultural diversity and not just focus on people being a specific way and correcting them. And, you know, I think that attitude is a huge part of the problem. So when you apply for research grants, especially from the National Institute of Health or even publish articles, it lifts the impact of your work to show that your research can provide therapeutic interventions to improve human health. So essentially, most things are successful if they're treated like a problem to be fixed. This is such a good point and so true. I mean, when I I just finished writing a grant that I actually received recently, and when I wrote this grant, even though our lab does very basic biological mechanisms, we had to really push the link of how my research can help with muscular diseases. If I didn't have that link in there and like really make it 
at the forefront, I would not have gotten the grant. So they want you to link things to disease and to making diseases better. Definitely. And it's the same thing when I was studying the fruit flies. I mean, really, we were just interested in the basics of how this cell division works and why this mechanism of building this division structure was so different in the female egg cell. It, it was a fascinating biological question to us. But to get funding, you have to link it to human disease. So we would often write about you know, Down syndrome or miscarriages or even try to link it to cancer in some of our grants. This was a long tangent from Down syndrome, but definitely helps expand our view of what is normal. We've touched before on the word mutation and the negative connotation of that and how what a mutation is really depends on what you're comparing it to. If I have a different DNA sequence at one spot than everyone who lives in Asia, I would be considered the mutant. It's all about your point of reference. Yeah, the lactose intolerance is a great example of that. We had a, a podcast on that. <laughs> so there was a study looking at distress responses in children with Down syndrome compared to other children. They measured distress by a researcher hitting their knee on the table and saying ow and grimacing and noting how the child responded. The researchers found that children with Down syndrome were not scared like other children, but were actually quick to ask the researcher if they were okay and patted them. A trait we would consider normal, responding to someone when they're in distress, positively, and wanting to help them, the children with Down syndrome were better at this trait than the children who didn't have Down syndrome, which is just interesting when we, when we look at what is normal and how we consider children with Down syndrome not normal, per se. I think Dr. Garland Thompson says it best um, in a quote where she says, we should be reminded that bad genes don't necessarily lead to bad lives, just as good genes don't necessarily lead to good lives. I agree. The power of genetic testing has been used to discriminate against those who can have great lives. Genetic testing is a powerful tool, but with great power comes great responsibility. We know that it can be used to detect conditions where the baby would not live more than a few years, such as Tay-Sachs disease. But as we discussed today, genetic testing can also be used as a tool to discriminate against those who have great lives. 